Hey y'all, welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie, that's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. Today's episode, as opposed to last week's, will be relatively short. short I mean, short for us, anyway. Yeah. We've got a cool lady today who probably had something to do with the very clothing that you are wearing while you listen to this episode, right? Maybe. I mean, I don't think I have as much as I think you think. I don't know. I don't know. But everybody's got some. Probably. I would say. If you're, if you have any kind of professional clothes, probably. Yes. If you have to, if you, okay, if you are not yet to the professional part of your career, if you're listening to this as someone who works in a not professional job, fair. But if you have to go to an office and sit at a desk, you've probably got some of this in your closet. True. Well, let's deal with our weekly business before we get to our BA. As always, please remember to go to iTunes, um, rate, review, subscribe. Um, it helps other people find us. It's totally free, makes us feel good, all that stuff. Wherever you listen, definitely favorite us, review, subscribe, heart, whatever, because then you get notifications that we're releasing new episodes, which being that this is only the second episode of the season, we've got, you know, 10 more coming out. So, and that's not even counting the bonus episodes over on Patreon, which you guys should all run out right this second. Well, like maybe not out, but like run to whatever device you do this kind of thing on and subscribe to our Patreon because then you get access to amazing bonus episodes and content. And the more people are over there, the more stuff we will do over there. So, you know, join up. If you have something to tell us, you can email us at bansscience at gmail.com or we're on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. So there's the business. Are there any addendums from last week before we get started on our BA this week? I don't have any. I don't think. Wait, no. Mom told us that polar bears can run up to 25 miles an hour. So they might look doofy, but apparently I would barely beat a polar bear if it was chasing me. So apparently they're pretty fast. So as doofy the more guys, you know, guys, yeah. the more you know. Saving lives out here. I also got a similar Don't outrun a polar bear. I'll try to outrun a polar bear. I also got a similar comment from um listener Ashley S who texted me, we're friends, and she said, do not under any circumstances try to outrun a polar bear you could not do it and I was like yeah, that's probably good, pretty good advice so and speaking of Ashley S she also messaged us because she had some guesses as to today's BA so I want to shout her out for that I want to tell you what her guesses are because they were very good and they went along with your clue they were really clever they Far, were really clever guesses. Honestly, more clever. Her guesses she, were more clever like, than our overthought actual- it. Yeah, yeah, like she's far more clever than we actually are. So now, now we know. Um, like maybe- I was, I'm really on the nose with some of these puns. Like you're thinking too too hard. I love it. I super love it. But yeah, yeah. Well, and so maybe you know, someday when we're rich and famous and we have people who want you know three episodes a week, we'll hire her as a researcher because clearly she's got the skills. That's true. So her first guess was Margaret Thatcher, little known scientist, big name in, you know, being the prime minister of Great Britain. Um, she was a proponent of government funded science and, of course, nicknamed the Iron Lady. 
Guest two is Elizabeth Teal, who worked on iron biology and how the iron gets to your body and what you do with it. Like it's iron and biochem mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The last guest was Janet Taylor and her work with navigation, because apparently this lady who for real got for real got added to our BA list. Mm -hmm. She did stuff with navigation and compass deviation on iron ships. Hmm. Yeah, so we're definitely going to be covering her at some point because she also had an interesting life. She like ran a business in, in a time when women didn't run businesses and she was a really good mathematician and navigator and all this stuff. Anyway, as good as those guesses are, none of them are correct. So I love yeah. that you guessed though. So if you guys have guesses, share them. As you can see, we will shout them out. We will discuss them. They're always going to be better guesses than the people we actually pick. And that's how we're going to source further seasons. So definitely tell us your guesses. Because like when I said this lady probably wasn't doing any ironing, I literally meant she wasn't ironing. Literally, she made it so we don't have to iron yeah. things. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so that's that's actually a pretty good segue. So if you don't have any other addendums, neither do I. Mm. All right, then let's take a break and and answer the question, who is our BA this week and why are we talking about her and ironing so much? So we're back to our normal format this week, but I am going first again, but this time with the bio and a little history about textiles. You'll you'll understand why I need to do that kind of when we get into it. So Brenna, give us our quote and we'll get started. I don't like it to be said that I invented washware because there were any number of people working on it and there are various processes by which you give cotton those properties. No one person discovered it or was responsible for it but I contributed to new processes of doing it. Awesome. That's a good That quote. is a quote from a woman named Ruth Benarito. Benarito. And I have to say that I deeply appreciate Ruth uh, because I'm not a fan of ironing. It's like one of those chores that mm -hmm. I hate and mm -hmm. I avoid it when I can't. Like, do you iron, Brenna? If you ask my husband, he'll say no. Okay. He irons more than I do. And some mornings I'm very lucky and spoiled because some mornings if I'm running behind and I need my shirt ironed, he'll do it for me. That's that's awesome because I, I but you work to like. You yeah, know. I mean, he does, too. I mean, we both work, but like he does work from uh, home sometime from the home office sometimes. So uh, sometimes he's not as pressed for time in the morning. So, yeah. oh, I never have to be anywhere in the morning because that's not true, but I'm a homeschool mom. So my schedule is very much more flexible than my husband. So if anyone will be doing the ironing in my house, it is me, which is why pretty much nothing gets ironed. Now, I, there are times when I will iron, like I take care of the linens for our church altar and those must be ironed and I iron them very nicely and very good at it, but it's also squares and I'm really good at squares. But like when you put, start putting sleeves on rectangles, that's when I have a problem. So, and I know that mom is rolling her eyes and possibly thinks she's a failure as a mother when she's hearing both of her girls talk about the fact that we are not fans of ironing because she's she probably irons every day. Well, I mean, we do like to hit you with the smooth sometimes, but we do. Um, <laughs> I did think ironing was cool in college because for a while in college, I wanted to be like, super domestic because 
it's like novel in college. It's like, oh, I could be domestic because I'm by myself now until you actually have to like live in domesticity and you're like, "Mm, thumbs down. This was a poor choice. Um, when you so have to I be used... domestic for other people, that's when it's like, yeah. mm, so a couple of girls and I, cause I went to a school where, you know, we were, a little, people were a little sheltered. It's fine. Uh, we would iron yes. Handkerchiefs because people at my school had those. We would iron them for some of the young men that we knew. And we thought we were so cool cause we were ironing for them. I mean, I feel like I got my fill ironing at that point. You know what? Mm. But again, you were you were ironing rectangles, so, right? Yes. Which I don't. Again, I don't. Squares. Have iron. I mean, handkerchiefs are square, right? Yeah. Well, but a, a square is a special kind of rectangle, okay. so it's still still a rectangle. Math major. Well, it is technically, oh, but either way, you and I don't love ironing. We avoid it when we can. Uh, turns out, a lot of people feel that way, yeah. and. Thanks to our fabulous BA today, the amount of ironing we all have to do is way less than it would otherwise be. So, Ruth Mary Rogan Benarito was born January 12, 1916 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her dad was John Rogan. He was a civil engineer and railroad official, which Mm. sounds kind of interesting, Ruth's mom, Bernadette Elizardi, was an artist and mm-hmm. very involved with very, very like various civic causes and okay. whatever. Uh, both her parents encouraged all of their six children, of which Ruth was the third, to pursue what pleased them, even if it was considered unladylike for the girls, which is you not- said, what, I'm sorry, what year did you say she was born? 1916. Okay. 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 Yeah, so this was well, not... so her mom, if she was civic-minded, she was caring about this, like, suffrage and probably stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? Absolutely, okay. yes. Okay, I would sure. say that that's definitely... When various civic causes in, in the early 1900s sounds like it's got to be women's suffrage, rights, suffrage, women's rights, things like yeah. that. And so, of course, they would encourage her and her sibs, the girls and, and the boys, to do whatever they wanted... And they weren't worried worried about unladylike professions or because that was after World War. Well, I mean, you were in the middle of World War One when she was born, but I mean, mm-hmm. their kids kind of spanned that, and that was a big culture shift, just kind of entirely acro- across the globe because women had to get involved. I mean, they still had like certain things they were supposed to do and not do, but still, that opened up a lot of other avenues for women in general. It as did. Well. It did. So, so in some ways, came, Ruth was came around the right time. Exactly. Ruth was born at exactly the right time for for some of this to be um, something, especially something that her parents would be encouraging of yeah. her, like do do the things that please you. Don't worry about what the boys say. You know, we don't know a lot about her early life or if we do, I couldn't find it. But she finished high school when she was 14. So she's probably pretty smart. And they had the typical in the United States, they had the typical kind of school system that you would think. And she finished high school at 14 or most people finish at 17, 18. Okay. So she was a little bit ahead there. So probably pretty smart. Um, and at 15, she started her college career at Sophie Newcomb college, hmm. which was the women's college of Tulane. So Tulane. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So Tulane was the school, but then the, the women's component as because yeah. most schools had, for those of you who aren't aware, most schools had a boy and a girl variety. Well, um, what's her face, Swanee? What was her name? Henrietta. Henrietta Swan. 
went to the girl version of Harvard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've encountered that a couple of times. Exactly. Right. Because women couldn't be around men because, you know, they have a uterus and, you know, they might be his or or something. I I don't know. So she was initially interested in math and science. But uh, she majored in, if she majored in math, which is what she really wanted to do, she would probably just end up as an actuary at an insurance company, which you should see the face that Brennan just made. And I know, like, if you don't, again, if you don't know what an actuary is, basically- Just know. You don't need to know. You just know you don't want to be it. No. They, they deal with measuring and managing risk. So you would get this situation about like how much risk is there involved here? How much is it worth? Like it's this whole big, there's all this math involved being an actuary. She had no interest in that, in that kind of desk job whatsoever. Just not what she wanted to do. She really liked to solve practical problems. So a more natural choice then was to major in chemistry, which does technically have lots of math and lots of practical problems that are still ready to be solved because yes, physics has a lot of math too, but a lot of those problems are more just like, how fast was this going? And what was the acceleration? And Newton did kind of all of that. So it, there's not a lot of math. Yeah, like we already solved that problem. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It feels like there are more new problems with chemistry for Ruth at this time. Yeah. Like, okay. Side note. I mean, I'm not saying all physics is like that today. Like if you are a current physicist, you're doing crazy cool stuff, probably with quantum related things. And it's yes. probably really BA, but like, but this was kind know. of before the shift. Like we talked about this in our last season with our Einstein with Einstein episode. Right. Yeah. This was still when ether theory was a thing. Right. There, there was not a lot of development going on at this yeah. time. It was actually, that's not true. It was just starting when Ruth was in college. Okay. Because yeah. she would have been 15, it would have been 1931. So just yeah, yeah. starting. So for her, right. the fields that had the most practical problems that she could solve and the most math at the same time, like simultaneously, that was right. kept. Because biology doesn't have the math. No, you can solve problems problems. with biology. You can solve problems with medicine, but like you aren't doing math necessarily. Yeah. And if you're going to, and if you're going to do it with medicine, that becomes chemistry because that's pharmaceuticals. True. Right. Because she's not trying to be a doctor. No, she doesn't. She did not had no interest in that. So chemistry. So she minored in math and physics though, because she did still like that stuff. Okay. She was one of two women allowed to take physical science with the male engineers at Tulane, which oh. she said, yeah, I know. And her quote about that was, and this is a direct quote from her mouth. I watched an interview. She said, they didn't like that one bit, which yeah, they probably didn't, but she did not care because, and I don't care what they think because she graduated in four years with a bachelor of science. So whatever. Tough tacos. I'm in your class. She, they probably were mad because she probably did better than them. That's why they were probably mad. Yes. They were probably like, crap, this lady's going to show us, oh, this girl's going to show us up and make, make us look bad. And she probably did. I she mean, did. honestly. Okay, so she graduated in four years, so it's 1935, and Ruth decided to go to grad school at Bryn Mawr for a year, and she trained to be a lab tech while she was there, and she thought about just becoming a teacher, but apparently high school science was mostly taught by football coaches at that time. Nowadays, if you're traveling at five miles an hour this direction, and the ball is coming at you at 20 miles an hour in this direction... At which point do you meet 
well, that's vectors, which is useful. And you can also talk about running routes. Like if a guy is going like in one direction, the ball is going to get there. You go in a diagonal. You could So sure. Nowadays, they mostly teach history. And I think mm, PE or PE. Yeah. What was our football coach at the high school? What did he teach? Can't remember. History. No, he didn't teach history. He taught. What was his name? I can't even think. Can't remember. I, all I can remember is our athletic director. And he didn't teach anything because he was the athletic director. He was the athletic director. And it, like, if we in middle school, like, yes, I remember we had like a basketball coach taught history. Well, he was a really good teacher. He really liked oh, history. He was really good. Yeah, he was actually yeah. really good. Um, the wrestling coach in middle school taught math. He did, and he was really good at it. I he had was really him. good at it. Yeah, he had a pet piranha too in the classroom. I remember that. Yeah. Anyway, now this is an interesting thing. Y'all hit us up with what some of the main coaches at your high school or middle school, what class they taught. Cause it's like a requirement. Like you have to, you have to be a teacher to be a coach, to be a coach you, at yeah. like the, in these programs. So let us know what your coaches taught as a subject and if they were any good at it. My volleyball not. coach taught science. Mm, that's right. My when tennis coach taught math. She taught trig. Right. So, hmm, so what I think happened was all the male science teachers, like you, it was hard to go to school to be a scientist if you were a woman. So dudes just did it and women aren't going to coach football. It's got to be men. So hence the male science teachers, please tell me if you played a sport, what did your coach teach? Tell yeah. us, please tell, tell us. us, please tell us. Y'all don't talk, You got to talk to us on Facebook so we can find out these things. Would yeah, that's what our Facebook is for. We're asking for input. We need to know. We'll put this in an addendum. We'll we'll see yeah. if we can get like I can even make a pie chart. I do love a good. We're gonna pie post. Chart. We're gonna yeah. We'll make a post. We'll figure out what our coaches all were. Yeah, we're making okay. a big assumption that the people who listen to this were remotely athletic, but we were vaguely athletic enough to be on a team. So you know, they're out or there. Or if you didn't play a sport, at least just you know a teacher. That you maybe had that happened to be a coach. Yeah. But they weren't your coach. I mean, the basketball, the seventh grade basketball coach was not my coach. Right. He was a teacher. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah, let us know. Okay. Okay. So as I said, high school science was not a thing that women did. In 1935, if you'll recall, a lot is going on in the U.S. The Great Depression. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of it. Yep. Yeah. So when... It was horrible. They say great, but not like awesome. It wasn't the awesome depression. It was the big depression. Okay. So I never thought about that. That's a really dumb thing to call it, huh? Well, nowadays, great depression. Like nowadays, great has a very different connotation. Back then, great meant big. Cool. I wonder if anyone studying the great depression or if they study in America, like in a foreign country, if it translates into like super awesome depression. I really do wonder how that, again, if we have international listeners, tell me how great would translate because, because <laughs> is it cool or is it big? Like those are two very different. Yeah. Because we can assure you it was hmm. not cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I've never if thought If we haven't it. offended our, you know, one French listener and. Right. If our one French listener is still with us, please let us know. You know, I don't know if we ever had one French listener, but like assuming we did and you haven't stop listening to us because of all the ridiculous things we've said about French people. To Sorry. be fair, it's mostly by the French aristocracy that we've said those things about. Yeah, yeah. 
the French yeah. people are not a problem, as, as is the case in most countries. The people are not the problem. The ruling class typically is. Okay, fair enough. Yes. Anyway, let okay. us know. Great Depression in a foreign language. How does that translate? Yeah, and, and maybe we can tell you if it's not translating properly, because if you're translating it, cool. Mm, that's not right. That's not right. Super! Yeah, no, not that. No. 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 Okay, so, when, but when Ruth graduated with her BS in chemistry, 20% of Americans were unemployed, which is high. Not great. It's high. Yeah. Once again, not great. So getting any job was going to be difficult. But after that year in grad school, Ruth needed a job. Like, she had to work. So mm-hmm. she went home. She's okay. back in New Orleans. And she works without pay as a lab tech in a hospital, which was not awesome. But then... FDR and the New Deal came along and she got a job with the Works Pro- Progress Administration as mm-hmm. a social worker, which must have been busy with all the economic distress of the time. Like, can you imagine? Yeah. Although yeah. I thought back then, did pe- back then, did people like talk about like, hey, this Great Depression is super depressing and I'm, you know, on the verge of quitting life because it's so bad. I think did they was- do that back then? she was more like a I can't help but notice that your children are starving (laughs) maybe there's a way we can get them free school lunch like those kind of things okay yeah okay yeah 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 um but finally she manages to find a job teaching science and math in the public schools in Jefferson Parish and now remember Louisiana doesn't Louisiana doesn't have counties that have parishes right because French so in addition to teaching math and science Here's something fun. She had to teach safety and driver's education. Okay. Cool. No big deal, except Ruth didn't drive. Yeah, so she was the first driving safety teacher in Louisiana ever. Oh. Uh, she was also the first one to literally drive into a ditch, <laughs> which was not her, again, not her best moment as a not, teacher. Not necessarily a BA moment for her. No. Uh, but what was BA was that she keep, kept teaching. So, so Ooh, that let her keep teaching. Listen, it was the war times. I can mm. only assume that there were there were some staffing problems eventually. But they couldn't so, find anyone else who maybe actually knew how to drive I, a vehicle. I don't know. I have a lot of Look, between her and Maud. Like this is why women get a bad reputation for driving. I know, and and I'm it's 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 boom. It's people like them, quite frankly. So you know, be better. Ladies, you're not, we're not bad drivers. Uh, But while she worked as a teacher, she also went to Tulane and finished her master's degree in 1938. Okay. So she continued to teach, but she moved from high school to college. And she taught at Randolph-Macon Women's College from 1940 to 1943. And then she joined the faculty at Newcomb College in New Orleans, which is where she had gotten her um, undergrad. Okay. Um, it was wartime. So were a lot. Of, sorry, were a lot of women going to college during the war? It was hard for me. I kind of looked into that because, like, how big were her classes, you know, yeah. in the 1940, 1943. But America, the United States didn't join the war until, well, Pearl Harbor was December 7, 1941. So we didn't really officially join the war until almost 1942. Mm-hmm. And so... 1942 and 43 is when she's teaching so maybe there was an uptick at that point but I mean I think a lot we think more started going to college possibly well and I say college but it might have been more like job training in some 
Because okay. like some some degrees you train to have a job mm-hmm. and these women need, were needed in the workforce. So okay. they might have gotten a job at a factory and they were like, oh, also take these three night classes because you mm-hmm. got to figure out, you know what I'm saying? So it might have mm-hmm. been something like that. Okay. There was a lot going on in her family, though, during wartime, too. Only And I, the only reason I know that is because they moved to Chicago during that time. Um, and when oh. her family went, she went, too. So what she would do is she would oh. teach at Newcomb during the school year. And she would work on her PhD in Chicago over the summer. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's a busy lady. Finally, in 1948, it took her that long because it was only summer times. Finally, in 1948, she got her PhD from the University of Chicago. And when she went back to New Orleans, she taught chemistry at Tulane at both the undergraduate and graduate levels. So she's really going for it now. She is a chemist. At Tulane, not the women's college part of Tulane. It, Tulane, it said, Tulane. It said Tulane. Okay. Okay. Um, in 1950, Ruth married Frank Benny Benarito, and they were married for 20 years until his death. Huh. I was going to ask why he took the nickname Benny if his last name was Benarito, but I realized that that's why his nickname was Benny. So, yes, I got there. You got there. Sorry. Good. That was the that was the pause. If you were wondering what, what the, that was the pause. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Guys, it's so- late. We're recording this late and my brain is, you know, fried. a little fried. Yes. It's also, okay. it's, we're re-record this, we're recording this a little bit before it's going to be released. And right now we're in the midst of cabin fever um, because it's winter time when we're recording this where I am, where I am. Yeah. I'm having cabin fever uh, difficulties with my kids and it's destroying my brain. So, well, it's also just everyone gets sick every four seconds season. So, you know, that is also true. Yeah. Deal so with that's, that too. that's a thumbs down. Yeah. Anyway, okay, let's, let's jump to 1953 in our timeline. Ruth okay. is going to take a job at the Southern Regional Research Center of the USDA. She was a physical chemist working on a project related to intravenous fat products, which I'm not going to go into, but it was important work. The Southern Research Center was a unique place to work too, because the USDA, okay, the USDA had opened four regional labs specifically to do research on regional products. The USDA is the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. So one of the pro- products the Southern Research Center was focused on was cotton. And in 1958, Ruth became the leader of the SRC's Cotton Chemical Reactions Laboratory. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about cotton for a minute. So a quick tri- side trip. So as many are you talking about it as a product or scientifically as a product? Okay, good. Because I have to talk about it scientifically. Yes, I'm not really going to talk about the science of it. I just need to tell you why people in the South would have been studying cotton at this time. Okay. Because why would this be something? I feel like we can all guess. I actually, I mean, I know why they have, I know that they have cotton in the South, but I didn't know why it was important to study it at this time. Mm, that was something okay. that was news to me. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so, so yes, many of us know that cotton is a major crop in the Southern United States. Mm-hmm. It, cotton is literally the fabric of our lives, seriously, mm-hmm. but it has not been a simple road for cotton to be as ubiquitous as it is. Okay. We know that cotton fabric is comfortable. It's very easy to dye. It's renewable because you grow it Um, and it's breathable. It breathes when you wear it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But regular cotton fabric wrinkles very easily and requires ironing to look not rumpled. Yes. Okay. 
And but it was back you, then that was not acceptable to be no wrong. right. You you had you had to iron your clothes like that was the thing. And Brenda will tell you about why it does. Again, I'm not going into the science of any of that. Okay, but put it in your satchel because you're going to need to remember that. So cotton wrinkles, you have to spend time ironing. Enter synthetic fabrics. Okay, in the 1930s, synthetic fabrics started showing up, and by 1951, we had our favorite polyester. Polyester is literally incapable of being wrinkly. You you cannot wrinkle polyester. We'll talk about it. Good. But it's also really hot because it doesn't breathe. Air doesn't move through it at all. But think about it. During World War II, men were going to war and women were going to work. And they had a lot less time to spend on those super cute domestic tasks we talked about at the beginning. Um, and let me tell you, ironing is time consuming. It like It is one of the more time consuming things that I do. And even if I did it often, you can only iron a shirt so quickly. Like there is, there is a ceiling to that, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you told me I could buy clothes that wash easy and I don't have to iron them, I'm in because ain't nobody got time for that if I'm a woman in the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. So synthetic textiles were on the rise, but that caused a sharp decline in the cotton textile industry. Mm -hmm. If it continued, they anticipated at the time that almost no cotton would be grown in the U.S. by the year 2000. But don't forget, cotton is a huge piece of the economy in the South. Not mm -hmm. having that crop would be devastating to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So after going through a depression. Mm. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. Yeah, you can see why the government would want to try and stop major unemployment from happening again. Because we've kind of got that figured out with the whole war thing. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to have to start another war because your cotton prices are low. Mm, no. True. So although that would be a better reason to start a war than some of the other ones that we have had <laughs> in history, I just want to say. I mean, you know. So anyway, the SRCC that Ruth was part of was trying to find new and better uses for cotton in an attempt to keep the crop from becoming obsolete. They figured, okay, okay we're not using it for clothes anymore. Great. But what else can we do with this substance so that we still have a lot of demand for it, we can still grow it, and so that the economy in the South doesn't suffer? Mm -hmm. And wow, did they find new and better uses for it? And I'm not going to go into any detail because Brynn is going to do that. But I will tell you that Ruth and her team figured out how to treat cotton so it wasn't so wrinkly, giving mm -hmm. us what we know today as wrinkle-free cotton fabric. And I'm betting, I'm betting that over 90% of the people listening to this right this second not only own wrinkle-free cotton, but they're probably wearing it while you're listening. It was that, and it's that big of a deal. Wrinkle-free cotton is everywhere. And Brenda's going to tell you all the details on it, okay? I'm but, not going to tell you anything else about it. Just that Ruth is the one that figured out how to make it. So I got to iron my husband's shirts all the time. Except for she said she didn't. I know. So we'll have to talk about that too. Okay. So Ruth continued to work for the USDA until 1986 when she retired. But she didn't completely retire. She continued to teach until she was 81 years old. 81. 81. And she only quit because her eyesight was going. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In her long and distinguished career, she held more than 50 patents and published more than 200 papers, which, as we have said before, is a lot. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2008 and received all kinds of awards. And I'm going to read you some of them because they're honestly amazing. So in 1968, she got the Federal Woman's Award 
And this award was given by the U.S. Civil Service Commission for, it was only from given from 1961 to 1976 to recognize outstanding women in government. She was working for the USDA. So, you know, winners would get to meet the president. So that was cool. I think she mm-hmm. met LBJ. I think he was the president at the time. Okay. So that was rad. Ruth also got the Southern Chemist Award from the American Chemical Society in 1968. Mm. And Brenna, you could actually qualify for this award at some point. Once you've lived in the South for 10 years, mm-hmm. which you do live in the South, mm-hmm. and if you participate in American Chemical Society events, and if you bring unusual recognition to the South through your work, mm. then you could get this award. I don't believe I'll be winning that anytime soon. But or ever actually, but uh, nice thought, sure. But you know, but you the point is that you could because you live in the south and you do chemistry. Yes, that's about the extent of my ability to achieve that. But yeah, sure, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Okay, so then the ACS also gave her the Garvin Medal for Distinguished Service to Chemistry by Women Chemists and the Southwest Regional Award. There's... Southwest. She didn't live in the Southwest. That's what it, the Southwest Regional Award is what it was called. I don't know. Um, uh, there's one other award she got, but I'm going to save that one for her legacy. So just put that in your satchel. Okay? okay. Despite all these honors and awards, Ruth said when asked that her greatest accomplishment was, quote, the application of basic physical chemistry to solve practical problems. So after Ruth retired, she continued to live in New Orleans until 2013. She died October of that year at the age of 97. Man, oh man. I know. Uh, she and Benny never had children, but she has lots of nieces and nephews that survived, oh. as, which is not surprising. There are, she had five siblings. Oh, so, yeah. you know, there are plenty of nieces and nephews. Um, and you can see her grave in the Hope Mausoleum in New Orleans. Hmm. Yeah. So that is what I have for you on Ruth. So not a ton of like crazy, outrageous stories. She just had a very she just did all the things very interesting life she's one of the ones again we have kind of two categories of BAs here she's one of the ones that just achieved things that Mm -hmm. are unfathomable at the time especially for the time so like this is a big shift from our our season opener a big shift from our season opener a big one big one because they were all ridiculous yeah it got crazy if you haven't listened to it go listen to it because it's it's just it's extra it's extra i don't even know what else to say about it it's a lot it's it's they they were doing the most really going for it yeah yeah so she's just you know a nice little break between some of the craziness oh because we got more coming for sure so so yeah so that's what i've got so um why don't we take a break and then you can get into the chemistry stuff that ruth was a part of okay Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. 
MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to protonguru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Well, Brenna, it is your turn. You get to talk about chemistry today, so that should be fun for you. You're going to tell us about how cotton got to become less wrinkly or like, is this easy yeah. to understand? Like, tell us, tell uh, us about it. Yes and no. And I wouldn't really call it, I mean, it is chemistry, but it's, mm, I don't know. We'll get it. Feels like, like we're talking textiles, right? So I'm specifically not a textile expert. Um, although there's a um the big Millican plant. Have you ever heard of Millican mm -hmm. textiles? Yes. So their Millican plant is in South Carolina. And when I was doing uh my summer research program, we got to go on a field trip there. So that was actually really cool because yeah. it's like they're like one of the names in the textile industry. And according to their website, I did look this up when I was researching, they were a leader in the industry for developing synthetic fibers for the war. Oh, interesting. Well, I was actually big on that, but that is kind of a nice segue into cotton and what we're dealing with. Okay. Yes. So not textile expert, but I do love polymers. And interestingly, these things that we're talking about are polymers. So I guess that gives me a little bit more desire to figure these things out but good. let's start with some basics and then i'll kind of work up to ruth's work okay. okay so cotton is actually a polymer so it's basically cellulose uh i think you can have you'll have a small amount of other stuff in there like um waxes and pectins and stuff but like a very small amount so mostly cellulose okay so what is cellulose you ask i do it is a natural polymer where I think we've said this before because I feel like I've talked about polymers before because I love them. But a polymer is just a really long chain of generally repeating units or you could have different combinations of that, but they're called monomers, okay? Yes. So you have like one monomer and then if you have two together, then there's a dimer and a trimer and then you get a, a huge amount until you have a polymer, right? Because polymer means many. Right. Many mers. Poly, yeah, many mers. Instead of a monomer, which is one, one mer. Mm -hmm. um what is mer for chain i don't even know unit know. they needed a, they needed a syllable i should probably know this because i've probably learned it but whatever so so then you have like 200 of them or whatever okay so cellulose is and this is just directly from one of my textbooks an unbranched polymer composed of repeating glucose units joined in a 1,4 beta glycosidic linkage is that cleared up for you yeah i understood all of those words separately Okay. Yeah. So glucose is a small molecule. Yeah, You're all aware of it. And, you know, they check your blood glucose or your blood sugar, right? Your right. So glucose. Yep. And we talked about glucose and glycolysis and the Cori cycle and all of that last season. So I won't go too much more into that, but glucose is this small little unit. Okay. And so it's a six membered ring Five of the atoms are carbons and there's one oxygen, okay? Mm -hmm. And then off of all the carbons, you have these little alcohol groups. Well, you have a CH2OH group for one of them, but little alcohol groups, okay? Okay, so it's in a ring. Do you know what these alcohol groups that come off of glucose are capable of doing? Bonding? Mm, 
okay, hydrogen bonding, but it's a terrible name because hydrogen bonding isn't actually bonding. Yeah, I know. I, I've never been able to really understand, like explain that very well to my students. My coworker gets very upset about that specifically. And I feel like I've absorbed that anger because now every time I talk about it to my classes, I get angrier about it every time. Like it's not a bond, you guys. But hydrogen bonding is an intermolecular force. Yes. So if you have a bunch of the same molecule, like you aren't ever going to have just like one molecule. So you've got, you know, glucose molecules together. Okay. And intermolecular forces are how those molecules can interact with each other. Yes. Okay. If you have oxygens and nitrogen or nitrogens, and then you have hydrogens, like OHs, NHs, those kinds of things, they're capable of fluorine, but whoever deals with fluorine hydrogen bonding. I mean, they probably do in fluorine chemistry, but as we've discussed, that's the stuff chemistry is dangerous. We're not doing that. It's the blow up stuff. So no. no. Um, so oxygen and nitrogen. So you have alcohol groups, which are these OH groups, right? And so you can have alcohol groups, hydrogen bonding with another OH group and another molecule and so forth. Yes. Now it's a pretty, well, it's a strong interaction insofar as if you're talking intermolecular forces, with covalently bonded molecules, okay. but it's not the same as like an ionic bond. Like right. an ionic bond is like an Na plus Cl minus, yep. right? Like it, you can't just like melt salt. No, right. I mean, you can, but you need like bazillion. It's like 800. I think it's like 800 Kelvin or something. I don't know. It's a stupid, it might be, wait, no, it's 600 something for melting, 800 something for vapor. Anyway, it's stupid high Stupid heat. high. Yeah. Like, most normally you can't just like stick some salt in your oven and melt it. Right. Right. It doesn't just become a puddle. Whereas you can melt sugar. I frequently do. If you make candy, you have to like, you're melting the sugar down. Okay. So, and melting points and boiling points are like when something melts or goes into a different phase, it just means you have to give enough energy to break up those intermolecular forces. Yes. So anyway, as far as intermolecular forces go, it's fairly strong, but it's not stronger than like ionic. So there is flexibility to like have them in, have that hydrogen bonding, but also disrupt that. So just. Sure. Well, I mean, we teach in basic chemistry that water has the, and and it's important that water can do that. So there are other things besides water that do it. And glucose is one of them. Yes. Okay. So when you have cellulose, which again, are just long, long chains of glucose units like over and, and, over and the over glucose over is hooked glucoses. to each other with the hydrogen bonds no they're going to be chemically bonded they'll form acetals uh hemiacetals mm, acetals by the time you, i think it's acetals. anyway okay. they'll, no they'll, they'll be actually covalently bonded got it okay but so like imagine you have a chain of glucose or mm-hmm. excuse me cellulose mm-hmm. right so you have a chain of them and they're all actually covalently bonded yes but then you have another chain of them that have OHs oh. sticking off of them and OHs sticking off of them. So the OHs between the chains can talk. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Yep. I'm making a lot of hand motions for Maggie that she can see right now. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I kind of look like an airplane, uh, a little bit. Like, yeah. But two I'll exits the, here, two exits here. I'll include a picture on Facebook of not Brenna doing that, but okay. of like what she's talking about where there's the stacking and the yeah. layers yeah. and the the bond yeah. I'll, I'll okay. find a picture yeah yeah so you have these long chains and if you're you've woven it into a fabric you just again you have all these chains sitting on top of each other to make up this fabric okay mm-hmm. and they're hydrogen bonding yeah now again hydrogen bonding as i said it's a strong intermolecular force but it can be disrupted mm-hmm. 
So if you have your perfectly pressed cotton blouse and you throw it in the wash, the water, because the water can hydrogen bond, yeah, can, can go in and just disrupt all those hydrogen bonds that are holding those chains all nice and neat and perfectly crisp, whatever together. So then when they break, the molecules can move around and go whatever and direction they move they want. and then reform hydrogen bonds at this angle. Now oh, you can see no. this. this instead of this angle, angle that's yeah. how you get wrinkles, right? Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. So when that's why when you get something out of the wash, it's going to be extra wrinkly because like all that hydrogen bonding between the cellulose chains has gotten messed up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we see the wrinkles. So that's which I thought that was interesting because I actually did not understand, did not close wrinkle. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And hopefully I'm explaining this right. Like I did. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. It feels reasonable. Okay. So before we talk about this solution to this wrinkle. Um, why do fabrics like polyester or nylon, Dacron, like all these kinds of things that were kind of on the market, like nylon was another newer yeah. synthetic fabric and stuff. Why don't they have these issues? Okay. So polyester, you mentioned this one. Okay. Guys, polyester is like a plastic. So that's why you don't iron. <laughs> like, I'm very you uncomfortable. You melt the fabric. Like if, if, do you remember mom saying like, you'll melt it? Like, she's not kidding. Like you will actually yeah. melt certain fabrics because of the material it made up from. Okay. Polyester. Uh, I don't know. It's probably derived. Well, I don't know. It's probably derived from a mixture of things, but polyester. So esters are carbonyl groups with an oxygen, but, um, I don't know exactly where they derive all the polyesters, but it's, it's, similar to a plastic. Okay? It comes from a place of horror because <laughs> I don't like, I never really equated it with being plastic before, but you're right. Now that you've said it, it's absolutely true. Yeah. It's kind of like a plastic. So that's why you don't iron them on like high heat because you can actually melt or like, um, you have to be careful if you have like, like your wedding veil, you can't just like go like cranking the heat up. Cause you will just, all that mesh will just like conglomerate into like a thing, yeah. right? Like lump yes okay so they also shouldn't wrinkle too much okay so polyester structure is such that it doesn't have the same interactions because it's an ester which it does have oxygens in there that potentially can hydrogen bond but it just doesn't it doesn't have that it's not relying on hydrogen bonding to hold it in place in the first place Got it. i guess okay, okay. so it can and it doesn't it really interact with thing. water as much like it's not as polar because it doesn't have all those alcohol groups and so yeah you just don't have to worry about that susceptibility of hydrogen bonds breaking in the water and all this stuff. So, um, so the structure you could say, I think it's like more rigid in the sense that the molecules don't move around the same, the chains don't shift kind sure. of the same. Anyway, synthetic fibers, like you said, were really important during the war, obviously, because a lot of those synthetic fibers were better or stronger than cotton or cheaper or, um, well, I would rather have a thing. nylon rope than a cotton rope. Yeah. Or like, I mean, nylon, I think was the if answer. I'm a pair, if I'm parachuting out of a plane, I'd rather yeah. have nylon. But like yeah. silk is expensive and mm. nylon is similar, mm-hmm. right? Like if your um, parachute is made out of nylon, it's still a similar fabric. I always think of like pantyhose nylons, but I mean, yeah. you have to imagine like there's different types of nylon. So the nylon we're talking about for like parachutes obviously is like that silky fabric, right? Yeah. But it's not silk, which, you know, silk is not cheap. And also like, can we just for like two seconds, I read a book about, I don't even remember some emperor in China, it was historical fiction, but like they had like the silkworm nursery thing. Yeah. It's sound, it's just gross. Like whoever has to take care of silkworms, like ew. And it's just 
Ugh, it just makes me feel icky. Okay. Ooh, it's okay. Gross. So silk silkworm farming. Silk farming. Ooh. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Maybe we'll do um, an episode on it. I'm not do I'm not talking about it. It makes me feel yucky. <laughs> I'll do a mini on it. Okay. Um, so I'm not knocking synthetic fibers because don't get me wrong, I've probably got stuff in my closet that's synthetic fibers. Like I don't have hundred percent cotton everything in my closet. Of course. Um, but those fabrics can be less breathable. Like you said, not as good for you to wear on your skin long-term and so forth. Like I have found my older daughter, she has, um, eczema issues. Mm -hmm. And when she wears certain types of material, Mm -hmm. like I've gotten her like target brand shirts before that aren't the cotton. They have like, they have like kind of a fleecy feel on the exterior, but I think the inside, I think it's polyester. I've never, I don't know that I've actually looked, but if she wears that and then gets sweaty in it, she'll get a lot of eczema issues, like outbreaks and stuff. But if she runs around in like cotton denim, like I don't really see it. So kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, I did go, I went down some random rabbit holes about synthetic fabrics and stuff, but back to Ruth and the cotton conundrum. Okay. Okay. So she basically starts working on trying to figure out how to make cotton wrinkle resistant because cotton industry is in crisis mode and we need to fix this. Okay. So here's where I'm really not going to, I told, I feel like I've done a lot of science. I'm going to do some hand waving here. Okay. That's fine. (laughs) So a way, um, a way to cross link the cellulose fibers was the solution. Okay, okay, what does that even mean? I don't know. So cross-linking is very common in polymer chemistry. And in fact, like the ever popular kid favorite slime yeah. is cross-linked polymer. When you when you make slime, you're taking two different polymers and you're um, cr- cross-linking them. Okay. Okay. When you mix them, you're actually making those cross-links, which is what forms the goo. Mm-hmm. And so when you what you do when you cross-link is you're joining those two polymer strands together, not like long wise, but mm-hmm. in between, right? So we were talking about there's, oh, these OH groups sticking off of cellulose right. that were interacting. Well, now they're like, well, what if we cross link those chains, oh, which yeah. seems like a really simple expo- like solution. If when they go in the wash, they get disrupted by the water and move around, just make them not be able to move around. Yeah. That's that. I mean, in terms of solutions. I mean, would I have ever come up with that? No. But when you say it like that, when I read, I'm like, well, yeah, duh. It's, it feels like one of those things where like the intern is in the big meeting and they're just like, why can't you just stop them from moving? Yeah. And everyone's like, oh yeah. Like it feels like that kind of a thing. So one source I read compared it to like a ladder. So you're like basically putting rungs in a ladder when you cross link a polymer. Oh, okay. Right. Or I guess you could even think like, you know how DNA like has the two main helices and then you got those little lines in between mm-hmm. that keep them connected. Kind of yeah. like that. Okay. I mean, that's not, but the same idea of like you have two strands that you're keeping rigid because rigid. you put this thing between them that says, yes. hey, this thing is connected to this atom in space. Those can only move so far if they are connected like with an actual bond. So cross-linking yes. is an actual bond versus just relying on hydrogen bonding to hold them together. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so this provides a stronger polymer because of like actual bonds, not hydrogen bonding, which is not actually bonding. Got it. Okay. In the case of cotton, or I suppose more specifically cellulose, Ruth and her team found that when you cross-link the cellulose, the fabric holds together better 
So things like washing it in water don't affect it and cause those wrinkles. Sure. So again, we're just, we're replacing those weak intermolecular forces for stronger actual chemical bonds. And that's less susceptible to be disrupted. And you've made cotton more like something akin to polyester in terms of the wrinkle, wrinkle ability, non-wrinkle, anyway, the ability to wrinkle or not, Yes. but maintaining the integrity of the fact that it is cotton. I mean, now there's something else in there. So it's a little bit different, but that small amount added isn't really changing cotton in general. It's not making it into a plastic. Right. And if you felt wrinkle-free cotton, you can tell it feels a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Like if your husband's dress shirts or dress pants have like, that's really the only wrinkle-free cotton we have in our house is my husband's, some of my husband's dress work stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have button down shirts anymore and stuff. But anyway, so you can tell there's a slight difference in the feel because it does feel slightly different. But um, again, it's still like cotton-based, cellulose-based fabric. Okay. Yeah. Um, Kind of also you could think of it like a perm. So like you have disulfide bonds in your hair mm-hmm. and you break them apart and then they move around and then you reform them. So kind of the same kind of, okay. You know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I think Ruth in the interview that I watched, I think Ruth even compared it to kind of like the same concept of a perm. As well. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. All right, guys. Cause I'm a not perm gonna... is a permanent wave. Well, it's whatever shape you give it, but yeah. But that's what it's called. It's a, like the the long, the when you go permanent, to get a perm, right. you're getting a permanent wave and you can do that wave in a lot of different shapes, but yeah. that's essentially it. And it's that, it's that changing the shape. Yeah. Cause you have disulfide bonds. And if you break all the disulfide bonds existing in your hair, then you use a chemical to do that. Then you put the hair into the shape you want it to be so that where the sulfides are in space are in different places in the coils and then you add a chemical that makes them reform yeah and then anyway it's bad for your hair friends i mean the idea of it's really cool like i like the chemistry of it but it will make your hair fall out but it's not good long term on your hair yeah no yeah Yeah. i'm glad we don't don't, i'm glad we have moved beyond that as being a major hair trend yeah for the most part yeah i'm not gonna lie though i try to read slash skim several of Ruth's actual papers on this subject yeah. and it was I don't like admitting this but even for me it's just kind of a lot to oh. digest and understand okay. um Maggie for your benefit because I know I know you love oh my them. gosh are you going to tell me what the papers were named yeah Ugh. let me give you the title of one of her papers great the, <clears throat> the action of epichlorohydrin in the presence of alkalis and various salts on the crease recovery of cotton yeah. Interestingly, this paper mentions during Millikan patents. And now we've come full circle. Oh, and yes. about Millikan. There you go. Um, so bottom line though, okay, because I don't really want to get into all the different types, because today I'm sure it's different. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure we've come a long way, but different types of chemical classes, basically type, different types of chemical makeup of, of forming those um, cross-link bonds mm-hmm. were used to treat cotton. And they worked through like what type of treatments worked, um how you could make the cotton wrinkle resistant what types of functional pieces were great what weren't how do they hold up those kinds of things another article i read that i believe was on the early end of their publishing results about this research was all about cotton cellulose and dye functional epoxides so epoxides is one of the groups just in particular that gets mentioned but they are epoxides are three membered rings so it's an oxygen with 
two carbon atoms in a ring. And they're an interesting class of compounds in and of themselves. I talk a lot about them in organic chemistry for yeah. synthesis, but I had no idea that they were used in, well, at least back then were used in this way. But again, I don't, I apologize, but not really because I didn't care as much because that that's just, it was really dense reading. If guys, if it was dense reading for me, like no, offense, no. like I wasn't going to try to go there. So again, I'm sure that the chemistry has changed, but I didn't deep dive into that. Okay. Yeah. But here's just a snippet of this paper and why I'm not going to try to go into a ton of details. Okay. This report is concerned with an evaluation of properties imparted to cotton by diglycidyl ether of 1,4-butanediol, mesobutadiene diapoxide, epinite 100, and vinyl cyclohexene dioxide under various conditions of zinc fluoroboric catalysts. Uh, and later, with the proper technique of application, diapoxide can be used for the production of durable crease resistance finishes for cotton fabrics. All four diapoxide studies in this investigation can be successfully applied from the methanolic solutions in the presence of zinc fluoroborate catalyst, etc. Yikes. And it's, I mean, it's not, it's not like crap science. It's just, there's, there's a lot about the proper mole ratios and how they measured it and how like, yeah. but none of us care. Nope. We none don't. None of us care. Sorry. Sorry. Like Ruth B, you are a BA, but like none of us care about this stuff. But I did, um, they started looking at different like co-reactant curing agents. So things like citric acid, um, imidazolines, different, again, different kinds of functional groups, different types of classes of compounds to try to figure out what worked. And uh, yeah, just like a lot of really smart investigation into this type of stuff which would have been really interesting how we had the computing power back then when they were doing this because physical chemists today oftentimes use mathematical calculation software to mm -hmm. model chemical interactions and stuff. And it'd be really cool. I should ask, I've got a colleague who's in um, chemical uh, or she's a P chemist and she does like all that kind of stuff. I should ever ask, I should ask her if she's ever looked into like this kind of stuff because it could be kind of interesting, but anyway, yeah. Um, but Ruth was basically an expert in cellulose chemistry, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so that intravenous fat program that you yeah. mentioned, I tried yeah. to find so much. I, I wanted to dig into this. But so it was an intravenous fat program, and it, she helped develop a way to deliver fat to soldiers intravenously, as you might have guessed from the title. Yeah. Um, so all I could find is that this method was a treatment for soldiers during the Korean War mm -hmm. who were too weak or sick or wounded or whatever to eat. And sadly, like most of my knowledge about the Korean War comes from MASH. All of my knowledge about yeah, the Korean War. Yeah, I comes yeah, from MASH. basically all so. anything I know about the Korean War is from MASH, which is really not probably really good to admit, but mm. you know, we all have spots we need to grow. But I don't ever recall them doing this on the show. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if about you're a MASH it. expert and you remember that I'm giving intravenous fat uh to their wounded let me know yeah but um yeah this rabbit hole really didn't lead anywhere else because i couldn't find anything else on it because so i don't like know if it don't... just wasn't that great or if it just we got a lot better at developing intravenous fluids to give to soldiers or anybody who was suffering injury so maybe that's why it kind of like faded out or whatever I think that's... or they realize that yeah. it's not just fat that these people were needing and there's like a lot of different types of nutrients that a person would need to intake if they're, you know, incapacitated yes. from being able to eat stuff. But I think it's a combination still pretty cool. of things. Yeah. It's still a pretty cool thing that she got to work on. And it's, you know, just something else she can add to her impressive resume of accomplishments. 
that's kind of in a nutshell, again, without going way too deep into that mess of words that we heard. Yes. That's kind of, you know, what Ruth did for Cotton. That's great. That I that was I understood all the things I needed to understand. So I know I know why clothes wrinkle now. So when I when I go downstairs later tonight because I forgot to put the laundry in the dryer cuz I always do. I'm sure I have. I will think, "Oh wow, I know Those why blasted these hydrogen bonds." Yeah, like why why did my why did this water destroy the hydrogen bonds? I know why. So now I'll know. I like that. Okay, then let's take another quick break. And and true to our promise, guys, this episode is coming along in a nice clip. This one's going to be a little bit shorter yeah. for you. You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, some of you, I think, really like our longer episodes, but don't, don't worry. But the long episodes are good because they're long because there's so much tea. Yeah. Like if this episode was long, but I literally droned on about Ruth's papers, no offense, Ruth, but your papers were really hard to read. Like people would be like, mm, okay, done. You yeah. know, like, yeah, no, I'd rather so long episodes are worth the journey. Agree. Sometimes I agree. We just need a longer journey. I agree. And, and today's journey is relatively short. So yeah. let's take our break and we'll wrap up this journey with, uh, with Ruth's legacy. So clearly Ruth's legacy is in our homes and in our lives. So that's cool. But what else can we say about her legacy? I have a little something to say. What do you, what do you think though? Well, I do love that she was so humble about everything and wasn't like, yes, I single-handedly saved cotton and made the world a better place. Um, I mean, I do love when we have those crazy arrogant BAs, but like yes. she just seemed, so I think you and I watched the same clip of her mm -hmm. um, interview. She just seemed like such a nice, like Southern, well, Louisiana, I mean, she definitely has that New Orleans like vibe or whatever, mm -hmm. but yeah. like her Southern manners and just such like this calm demeanor. And I bet it was so awesome to get to work with her in lab or have her for professor. Like I would want to be that kind of like just cute old like grandma professor or something like they peak the students probably loved her you know yes um and I bet she was really good if they didn't do well of being like disapproving dis you know disapproving grandma like yes. disappointed grandma I bet she did it really well mm -hmm. um but yeah oh. the fact that she was a professor like you know of course I have a little little extra love for for her for that but um, for me, as far as how her contributions impacted us beyond the convenience of having cotton clothes that don't wrinkle and, you know, mm -hmm. saving cotton and stuff, her work and understanding of cross-linking cellulose did pave the way to other important modifications to cotton. For example, flame retardant cotton was a direct result of Ruth's work. Oh, okay. So there are now other ways in which you can modify the cotton to give them other kinds of properties. I don't believe the same treatment, like I said, is used on clothing today. Um, but I do think upholstery and some of those are still treated um, like the flame retardants. Mm -hmm. um, I think upholstery and those kinds of things are still okay. treated like the normal way or the original way that they treated. But clothing that's fire retardant, I think they use different types of uh, yeah. chemistry at this point. But I'm so all about cool. flame retardant materials. Yeah. Um, but in an article I was reading from 2009, they were also talking about using the same concept for wound treatment and bandage usage, um, like the bandages that were used. So there's a guy named Vince Edwards who had developed a cotton medical dressing that was treated by cross-linking the cellulose. But this treatment was designed to like sequester 
proteases, which are enzymes Mm -hmm. that would prevent healing of things like chronic wounds. So the proteases are positively charged. So the crosslinker is negatively charged. And since opposites attract, the proteases get pulled away from the wound towards the bandage. Oh my gosh. Isn't that so cool? That is brilliant. That's brilliant. Like that's such a cool way to do chemistry. Yes. That one I thought was really cool. And I didn't, like, I'll be honest, I haven't actually investigated that further. I want to follow up more with that because I find it absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I'll probably incorporate into my biochem class because yeah. we talk about proteases and we talk about different enzymes and we talk about, you know, but it's, I think it's such a cool idea that you could use that kind of chemistry in the bandage itself. I mean, bandages now, like the, um, there's all these antimicrobial things and they use silver nanoparticles, all kinds of really cool chemistry. So that wound healing is better and safer and cleaner and quicker, whatever, but chronic wounds, like there are people who have kind of like these chronic wounds, right? Like they're wounds that just open up and they can't get them to heal and stuff. So I don't know like how far, cause this, again, this was an article in 2009 and I think it was like kind of like a new thing that was being developed. So Mm -hmm. I don't know how far that's come. Well, that makes but yeah, me I'm going to follow up with it because I'm very fascinated um, to see if this is something that's kind of like made it made progress because oh, that's just cool. That makes me think of people who have leprosy. Yeah. Like the constant opening of wounds. And mm-hmm. I know that leprosy isn't as um, common as it used to be, but it is still like it still very much exists and still very much a thing. And so don't I touch wonder, armadillos ever, never, like, ever. Do not touch armadillos, guys. I know they look cute. Don't. Don't touch them because leprosy can be latent and you can like be 30 years down the road from when you touch that armadillo as a kid and then you have leprosy. It's horrifying. They're the animal reservoir for it. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. But anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is it leprosy? Is it a, it's a bacteria, right? Not a parasite. Um, yeah, no, leprosy is a bacteria and it's a rod shape. I don't know if it's gram positive or gram negative. And yes, you like, we are supposed to call it something else. It's, I don't remember. Hansen's disease. Hansen's or... disease. Yes. That that's what yes. it goes by now, yes. but yes, yes. But, um, yeah. So I don't know if you're bored and you want to know about Vince Edwards and medical dressing that can sequester proteases. And if anything ever came of that, uh, or if you're a doctor who knows, or I don't know anybody, uh, let me know. Cause that's kind of cool. But yeah, so, you know, Ruth herself, like we said, wasn't super exciting, but I did kind of like her driving thing. The fact yes. that she drove to a ditch, but we always love when we can love on a woman in the 20th, mid 20th century, like doing big things for the world. And, you know, I don't know, that's just BA. Cause even still in the mid 20th century, uh, women were supposed to be at home wearing their high heels in the kitchen, cooking dinner ironing and ironing so she said nuts to that thanks for <laughs> yeah, she did. Not do that oh well, yeah for sure so yeah that's how I feel about her I like her I like her too and when I watched her her interview I got this um because of when you know the job that I had in high school when I worked at the nursing home mm-hmm. there were there were people there who yeah they were these really nice old grannies but when you sat down and talked to them I mean, I talked to one of the women there, her name was Angela, and she was blind and had gone blind, was not born blind. She had gone blind later in life um, because of diabetes. And she had been a nurse in World War II. And mm. you would not believe, I mean, 
she had this amazing and fascinating life and she was an interesting person. So I see Ruth, this cute little white haired mm -hmm. granny, the Southern granny, and she's so sweet and mm -hmm. also led one of the most fascinating and interesting lives and did amazing work and yeah. all these things. And I like that that can be that much like the cotton that she, the cellulose she dealt with, she has layers and yeah. they're interesting layers. And, and I liked that about her. I mentioned that she got this other award that I wanted to talk about at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of brings in the whole thing with the interview that we've referenced several times. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. Ruth got the Lemelson MIT Lifetime Achievement Award for Invention and Innovation in mm -hmm. uh, 2002, which in addition to being a tremendous honor, comes with a $100,000 prize. So mm -hmm. that's, nice. that's not shabby. The Lemelson MIT program focuses on invention education. Um, the, this guy named Jerome Lemelson started the program when he was at MIT, or started the program at MIT. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, he didn't, when he was there, um, it was probably, my husband's a fundraiser, so I know exactly how that gift yeah. happened. Sure. Um, but he, and he's probably a BA that we're going to cover at some point, because he, hmm. there's tea. He'll be a longer episode, because he's got, mm, yes. Tea. Yeah. Um, but he um, invented, he, the stuff that he invented is in VCRs and cordless phones and robots and like little things like that. So he held over 600 patents. So he was a busy oh, guy. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, LMIT gave Ruth the award and made a brief video about it. And that video is listed in our sources. And it was fun because Ruth was featured in that video. And so that's the video that the that we talked about and why we got there was because of mm -hmm. this Lifetime Achievement Award that she got. Yep. And again, we've said this before, but it's so cool when you can see mm -hmm. the person that you're covering or mm -hmm. talk to a person mm -hmm. who like, this is the stuff they did. We're hearing it from this person's mouth yeah. about what they did. It, it really changes the way that we can um, experience the BA ourselves and then bring it yeah. to you. So yeah. Ruth is adorable and interesting and intelligent. And I also would really have liked to met her. She would have been, she would yeah. have been the only person I would have liked to meet for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, that's what I got on her. All right. So sources? Uh, I don't really have a lot. I did use sciencehistory.org. There's a profile of Ruth Benarito. Um, but tr truthfully, I mean, her, any of her papers, which I probably won't list in sources because let's be honest, you're not going to go read them. And then most everything else just came from my brain. Or my well, textbook. You're a uh, chemist. So yeah. That's a lot of this. I had actual sources because I didn't know anything about Ruth before this episode. Yeah. I used her obituary from LA Times and um, like on the MIT website, she's on there because of the Emelson Award. And I did, there was, I've used this book before. It's Notable Women in the Physical Sciences by Ben and Barbara oh, Shearer. Mm -hmm. That one, when that was published, I believe she was still alive. Oh, so, okay. so it was incomplete because she yeah. had since died. So that was uh, something I had to sort through, but, uh, but yeah, so those were my sources. Okay. So I think we're ready to tease next week. And now, as you all know, Brenna loves a good teaser. I and do. Apparently you've hyped this one quite a bit. Like before we were, you know, we talked before we record. And so Brenna really hyped up the teaser portion of this episode so all right all right Jeez. i've heard you cloud and clear you're tired of the puns but for crying out cloud i just can't help myself 
I'll try to get serious about next week's episode. Oh my gosh. Immediately no. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I do these mostly for the utter disgust that rolls across your face. I know. Rolls, rolls like a storm cloud across my face. I hope dad, dad appreciated it. Let's be honest. I'm sure that he did. And anybody who has, anybody who is a little sister or has a little sister understands. So, you know, it's fine. So yeah. But it is a good teaser for episode next week. Fantastic teaser. And I'm unbelievably excited about next week episode, not just because the content at, turned out to be cooler than I thought it was going to be, but because there is a very special Patreon episode that goes with it. Yeah. So we'll tell you more about that in our next episode and it will be on Patreon. And if you're not on Patreon, you need to get over there. Don't forget because our prices are lowered now. So okay. you're welcome because eggs are expensive at this moment. Yeah. In history. We went down in the midst of inflation. So ha, you're welcome. And, um, and, but this uh, Patreon episode is one that we will definitely be releasing on our main feed as a bonus because I want everybody to hear it because it's yeah. really, really good. So, so yeah, so next week's episode is going to be amazing. And Brenna gave you your teaser about it, for goodness sake. So I think that's all that I've got for this week. Do you have anything else? No, ma'am. All right. Well, then until next time, live dangerously, do science.